the award-winning book, Damascus After the Muslim Conquest, by Nancy Halick, Professor of Religious Studies at Brown University, is a study of the city of Damascus, the seat of power for the Umayyad dynasty. More specifically, this book explores the interaction between the recently arrived Muslim Arab rulers and the Byzantine Christian peoples who made up the majority of the population in Syria. Kalik employs both traditional historical texts, such as Ibn Asakir's Tariq Damashq, along with art and architecture from the region. She displays a mastery of both the Muslim and Christian sources, discerning the value of their historicity, but highlighting the narrative and iconographic significance that can be extrapolated from those sources. During her study of the sources of the stories and art, the narratives and iconography reveal that the Muslim and Christian cultures of Syria were in a type of dialogue with each other. She takes care to avoid stating this was a linear type of progression, of replacement or borrowing, but instead wishes to portray a blending of these cultures, a blending whose legacy lived on for centuries. Kalik's work is truly a significant contribution to the field of Islamic studies and indispensable interdisciplinary study for both its use of a variety of lesser-known source material and its reimagining of Umayyad history in Syria. Hi, Nancy. Hi, how you doing? Doing well. Good. Uh, today we're talking to Nancy Kalik about her work, Damascus After the Muslim Conquest. I've read it and I can highly recommend it. I especially like the part where she not only discusses traditional Muslim histories, but also uses art and architecture as she discusses her thesis. Nancy, I was hoping that before we get started talking about your work, you could give us a little bit of your biography. Sure. Um, thanks for asking, and thanks for asking me to do this uh, interview. So I really started thinking about this project um, I suppose when I started my master's degree, I did an undergraduate degree in history at Princeton where I started studying early Christianity and Christian-Muslim relations. And I ended up um, focusing on the period of late antiquity that was right up against the early Islamic period uh, under the guidance of Peter Brown and Michael Cook in particular. Uh, and I did a lot of work on history and historiography with uh, another professor there, William Chester Jordan, who's a historian of medieval France, but just a wonderful person to learn from and talk to, regardless of what period of history. So I really had a, a great team of teachers when I was an undergraduate uh, at Princeton. And then I, I went on to Michigan, uh, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, to do a master's degree in Near Eastern Studies to try and shore up um, kind of the Islamic side of things. And so I was thinking about this issue of the transition from late antiquity to early Islam, kind of early on in my academic career. Uh, that's not to say that I always knew what I would write about, but that I always had an interest in this direction. And it took some time before I could really crystallize my own ideas about what I thought was going on and what I wanted to explore in my graduate studies. So I, I headed back to Princeton after doing a, an MA in Michigan uh, and went back to working with Peter Brown and Michael Cook uh, and even Bill Jordan, who agreed to be on my committee again, even though it was outside his area. Um, in addition to having advice from a whole host of other wonderful people uh, and teachers along the way, in particular Fred Donner, whom I admired immensely from uh, a distance since he was at Chicago, and who I was lucky enough to get to know when I was doing my PhD, and who agreed to keep on uh, advising me throughout my graduate career, which was uh, an enormous 
uh, boon to me to have such an amazing committee put together. Um, so I really was interested in questions of Christian-Muslim interaction for a long time uh, and decided to focus on Damascus uh, because I thought it would be both easier and more practical to try and answer big questions by uh, looking at one sort of microcosmic type of, um, I suppose, a microcosm of the bigger questions, which is to say if uh, the entire Eastern Mediterranean underwent changes after the Muslim conquest, uh, was, was there any sort of local story I could tell that might shed light on some of the bigger issues of how things change, how things stay the same, right? That kind of cliche. Uh, so I focused on Damascus as the temporary capital of the Islamic empire under the short-lived Syrian branch of the Umayyad family, both for practical reasons and also for methodological reasons in the sense that it was an important city, it became a more important city, and so questions of transition would be emphasized because it itself undergoing massive transformation, at least in terms of its relevance and importance on the scene. Uh, and because there was a, a good historiographical source that I could mine, even though it was a lot later, which is to say the history of the city of Damascus by Ibn Asakir, the 12th century in the Gregorian calendar, 6th century in the Islamic calendar scholar, who compiled a massive um, biographical dictionary, which serves as a really great historical source for Damascus. So I had kind of everything on my side in terms of the people who could advise me in these areas, as well as the source that I knew I was going to focus on the most, um, and basically the kind of structure for asking these types of questions about transitions. So really my, I guess my biography almost led to this kind of a dissertation, which led to this kind of a book, uh, in the sense that these were people who were interested in questions of intersection, of cultural encounter, of historiography. And also at Princeton, I, I should mention, I, I took a number of courses with a wonderful Byzantine architectural historian named Slobodan Churchich, who was an enormous influence on me. And I took a number of courses with him where I really tried to make sure that I didn't become one of those people who just dabbles in, in architectural and archaeological history or art history but really tried to get as much training as I could so that I could think about these questions in meaningful ways, even though I was not primarily an art historian. So that's that's the, the long story of how I got there. It's a very nice story. Um, actually, what you were just uh, speaking of the source, and that kind of is a great transition into discussing your work, because in your first chapter, you spend a lot of time talking about you know narrative and early Islamic history. And that source comes up a lot during that initial chapter. Yeah, I mean, I, everybody tells you that when you write your first book, you shouldn't spend too much time on the, the modern historiography, that that's something that you do for your thesis, but you don't need it in the book. Because folks aren't necessarily interested in you showing your mastery over the, the, the modern debates. But I feel that for early Islamic history, that's, there's an exception there. In the sense that, you know, as I talk about in the introduction, and as many people who write books about early Islamic history have to talk about in their introductions, uh, the sources at our disposal are not necessarily the best for trying to reconstruct this period of history, if by the best we mean um, the most representative or, I should say, easiest to place within the period in which they, that they describe, right? Because they're, they're all later um, and they're composite and they're pretty obviously redacted. And so anybody who grapples with this period of Islamic history has to address the source issue. And that has been one of the biggest historiographical 
sort of conundra in in our field. And it's not it's not as polarized as it used to be. It's not even as inflammatory as it used to be. Um, in terms of those who think the sources are worthless and those who think the sources are worthwhile, I think that both extremes or both kind of oversimplifications of the debate uh, have have kind of receded, and that now the issues are a lot more interesting because the question is, well, how do we interpret with what tools? Uh, and there's all kinds of different answers. Some people use material culture even more than I do, a lot more than I do. Others, um, especially now in the digital humanities, are, are introducing all kinds of innovative ways for analyzing the sources that we do have uh, and interpreting the material that's in them. So I chose to, to use narrative as a kind of a, an, a methodological device because I thought it mapped on to our sources in interesting ways, uh, namely in the, the storytelling aspect of narrative, the sort of the constructed nature of narratives that in spite of that constructedness uh, still insist on telling a compelling story. So it's one thing to tell a story that adds up and makes sense. Uh, it's another to tell a story that adds up and makes sense and inspires people or educates people or persuades people. And I think that, you know, as I say in the introduction and as others have also said, you know, one of the canniest things about this corpus that we've got is how much of it is didactic. And so I started to ask questions about, you know, what makes something really persuasive and, and, and how much fiction can you get away with before you kind of jump the shark, so to speak, which is to say, how do you how do you write a compelling narrative that can inspire and edify and teach and maybe even incorporate some fictional elements or simply repeat uh, formulaic tropes, but that still sounds real enough that it will go ahead and, and inspire and educate and teach uh, and won't sound fake and won't be easily dismissed and will be persuasive. So how do you walk that line between representation and reality? And I, I thought that narrative was a good way to think about those kinds of questions. Um, and it was a, a neat device for me to use because I could then talk about the stories that images told and the stories that monuments commemorated, as well as the stories that were in, in words, in texts. And so narrative becomes both um, a literal and a figurative way of understanding the sources at our disposal, especially when we move on to non-textual sources. Okay. And so then as we start to transition into your uh, seceding chapters, you begin by telling stories about historical texts in early Islamic Syria. Yeah, and there were a couple of different questions I wanted to address there. Uh, one was uh, a question that has occurred again a lot in the modern uh, debates about historical writing in the early Islamic period, especially in Syria. So one big question was, how did Syrians think about and write history? And what happened to their work? Uh, the other question was who's doing the writing and how does their position in society affect uh, the kinds of things they choose to highlight in their writing and preserve? Uh, another question was how does this fit into the bigger story of historical writing in the, in the early Islamic period? So I, I chose to look at what I considered kind of in-between or marginal people and in-between or marginal sources. Maybe that sort of echoes a little bit the idea of uh, transition and change, people on the margins, people on the fringes, people becoming one thing after having been another. And so I, and I wanted to look at it over time. Um, and because the question of the transition was between Christianity and Islam very broadly and kind of generally speaking, I wanted to look at issues of Christian-Muslim interaction and encounter and if that impacted 
the way these texts were, were compiled and, and the information that was in them and how they were shaped. So I chose to look at um, descendants of a tribe uh, called Ghassan uh, and, and to see how their contribution to historical writing in the early Islamic period may have looked to see how it fit into this, this general picture of transition and continuity and then to look at other kind of marginal sources. And when I say marginal, I mean not kind of bald-faced historical chronological sources, but interesting anecdotes, conquest narratives, again, the stories that were meant to persuade and edify rather than just describe and catalog, uh, things that aren't the first thing one thinks about when they think about histories. So I, I, I did those two things kind of in conjunction, the Ghassanid scholars who uh, reported or compiled historical reports uh, in the context of Christian-Muslim relations in this transitional period. And, and, I, and I tried to highlight a number of tropes that I thought were significant uh, in how they compiled and told their stories and how that, historic, that historiographical trajectory looked. Uh, so one of the things I, I talked about in that chapter was the nature of the material transmitted by a relatively early family of Hassanids, uh, descendants of uh, Yahya ibn Yahya al-Ghassani, so in the second half of the second century uh, of the Islamic era. And I noted that in this kind of anecdotal compilation, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on the religious history of Syria, on biblical figures, on tropes having to do with Jesus and piety. There was a particular attention paid to the conversion of the Church of John the Baptist in Damascus into the great mosque of Damascus, a number of reports that filtered down into those marginal sources, the stories, the anecdotes, um, a branch of literature called religious merits literature. So I noticed a real preoccupation with the transition. And it was what was interesting about the Hassanids, of course, uh, as is well known, is that they had been uh, Christians, uh, not necessarily Chalcedonian Christians. They were of a different sectarian persuasion or Christian persuasion uh, in, the, in, the Islamic Near, in the early Islamic Near East. Uh, and had been federates of the Byzantine Empire. And so they had a real cultural memory uh, of having been real advocates for Christianity in the pre-Islamic period, in the early Islamic period, before this big period of transition. Uh, and a number of them did convert, however nominally that might have been, to Islam and continued to have important jobs and posts uh, within the Umayyad administration and in the Umayyad armies and even in the police force of uh, the caliphs, as scribes, as chamberlains. So they, they maintained a relatively high position um, in spite of the fact that they sort of really altered their identity. And so I thought it was really fascinating to see how people whose ancestors had been important federates of the Byzantine Empire continued their sort of important role for the whichever power happened to be in charge, even as they themselves underwent transition and had a real memory of their Christian past and that past's impact on the early Islamic period. I also um, looked at other sources, conquest literature in particular, to see if there was a similar preoccupation with Christian themes uh, and Christian-Muslim relations, and paid particular attention to one conquest narrative in which the characters actually debate these issues and debate issues like the Trinity and the nature of the Quran, and what I learned there was that those uh, early Islamic conquest narratives also echo the preoccupations in some Syriac and other Christian sources related to themes of the Trinity and the nature of the Quran and the nature of Muhammad. And so I felt like this was 
one way of getting at how these communities were wrangling with these issues, how they were instructing their own um, communities to talk about these issues to one another, how they dealt with these kinds of cultural questions or questions of cultural encounter, I suppose. And then the last thing I did in that chapter was, was take a look at how things changed. Once this period of, I guess I could call it engaged flux, uh, had sort of receded, which isn't to say that people had stopped talking about these things or that this issue of transition or change or Christian-Muslim interaction was less important, but I think it became less novel. And I wanted to see if the historiography reflected that. So I went back to the Ghassanids to see if later Ghassanids uh, were differently preoccupied in their historical uh, occupation, I suppose. And, and again, it seemed that they were. It seemed that what we have instead in the later period, I looked at another Ghassanid family with many scholars, lots of hadith transmitters in the family, this time descendants of uh, Abu Mus'hir al-Ghassani. And, and what I discovered by kind of trying to tease out which reports in various early sources were transmitted on their authority, again with the acknowledgement that not taking at these sources at face value, but looking at what they represent and how we can interpret it, uh, really discerned a much more local administrative flavor to that kind of material. It seemed that the big universal questions of why are the Muslims here, what are they doing, how valid is this religion, had been satisfactorily answered. Uh, there was a more kind of solidified sense of boundaries and who is the Muslim, who are the Muslims and who are the Christians, and how do they talk to each other about each other and about the issues that are important to them. That was less about separating and defining oneself than about besting the other. And so that reflects a more, I'd say, mature or developed stage. Uh, so that's what that chapter really covered, the big questions of who's writing history, what do they remember, uh, how do they fit into the biggest, the bigger picture, how does their social position affect what kinds of historical preoccupations they have, what sorts of other literatures might be affecting them, um, and how does that tradition evolve and change as the, the Muslim community itself evolves and changes. And then following that, you begin to, I think, use more specific examples as you begin to talk about John the Baptist and spaces in Islamic Syria. Yeah, I, I really like that chapter, I think, the best, um, because I got, to, I got to wear lots of different hats and look at lots of different materials. So the book itself, uh, as you can probably tell by now, doesn't travel along a chronological trajectory. Each chapter is a sort of a case study for these big questions of, of what changes and how. Uh, and so the, the third chapter deals with uh, material culture uh, and how a particular saint's cult could, could speak to these questions. So uh, I looked particularly at the, the cult of John the Baptist in Syria because the most important monument in early Islamic Damascus was the Great Mosque, which had been a church or a cathedral dedicated to John the Baptist. So that was kind of an obvious decision. Uh, but as I explored the story, not so much now um, just of the fact that an important mosque was built on top of a church, that happened quite a lot, it wasn't, it wasn't unique by any means, um, I discovered that there was a lot of investment in, in John the Baptist himself. And it seems uh, fairly obvious that one of the, the most important things for the Umayyads to do was to establish a monumental presence in the cities that they conquered and that they occupied or that they lived in and ruled over. So again, Damascus being their nominal capital, uh, other places were similarly invested in. And there are, are really good uh, recent books about the, um, the nature of their archaeological 
investment by Antoine Boru uh, and other scholars of early Islamic Syria. Um, so I, I wanted to think about how the art and architecture and texts all worked together uh, in this environment. So I looked at the cult of John the Baptist and how it was venerated in, in the first place in Christian terms, and I looked at the iconography of the baptism to see what kinds of dogmatic implication it had and how that might have been received by the early Muslim community, because I thought it was particularly important to look at how that cult, which was very connected, I think, to the cult of Jesus and the cult of the cross, because of the iconography of the baptism always uh, containing the image of the cross and kind of being this image of both imperial and, and religious triumph uh, representing the physical manifestation of God on earth in the moment of baptism, which was a particularly potent message, not just for Christians, but for Muslims in, in a period in which they're arguing about the Trinity and, and the validity of this whole scheme. Uh, and so I, I looked at how that Christian cult of John with its implications for the Trinity, with its implications for the enfleshed God, uh, and how that might have impacted viewers uh, from the early Muslim community, particularly the Umayyads who were invested in establishing an imperial presence and in kind of competing with and outdoing uh, the monumental presence. And I, you know, one of the things that people have asked me about since is, uh, Know, why I focus on the Byzantine monumental imagery when, in fact, probably the Syriac tradition would have been more or equally impactful. And, and I think, uh, for my purposes anyway, I was really concerned with the competition on an imperial monumental level. And so what they were really seeing was this Byzantine uh, representation. And in taking over a place where John the Baptist had been uh, venerated, where his relics allegedly had been interred, um, they were really dealing with a kind of a high-level representation issue or image problem. And so what I argue in this chapter is that uh, once the church was converted into a mosque, there was also a narrative of discovering the relics of the Baptist during this construction project, uh, reinterring them. And I argued that the Islamic narratives that we have from, say, Ibn Asakir, but also from earlier sources, seem to mirror or... Uh, reiterate a number of details from both the Byzantine iconography and the Byzantine hagiography that describes the Christian discovery of the relics of John the Baptist. And this comes out most clearly when we read Ibn Asakir alongside uh, looking at the Byzantine images. And so we've got a number of elements like an important imperial figure being present when the relics of John are discovered like workmen going into a subterranean space, even the tools are, that are mentioned are the same, with pickaxes and finding the head in a basket or a box. Um, and so we've got all the same stuff in the early Islamic narratives, which to me was a wonderful uh, example of how people from different confessional communities living in the same material world tend to draw on the same body of material evidence in constructing their narratives which is to say, to go back a little bit to what we said, talked about in the first chapter, these narratives aren't just created out of, out of the air, but that they are rooted in the material world in which people live. And that helps contribute to their uh, veracity, that helps make them more persuasive uh, if they are built out of the environment uh, in which people live. It makes sense to their aesthetic sensibility, to their uh, sense of what is a good story. 
Uh, and so that was how I dealt with the kind of Muslim interpretation of John the Baptist and how his cult was co-opted uh, with the Trinitarian elements kind of removed and carefully excised so that John the Baptist goes from being the forerunner of Christ and the essential witness to the enfleshed God at the moment of baptism to simply being the pious prophet venerated by Muslims who um, may have been the forerunner of Jesus the prophet, but kind of with all the Trinitarian theological dogmatic elements removed from that particular story and co-opted, and just the John the Baptist story being co-opted into the Islamic sources. And then because I, 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 again, I'm not primarily an art historian, I wanted to go back to texts and see if I could kind of keep making this move from text to material to material to text and to see how, how the Baptist and other people continue to be venerated as the Muslim community established its own, um, I guess, cultural system around veneration of relics uh, and holy places. And so I looked at other holy places besides the Great Mosque uh, that came later, in particular uh, the tombs of the Companions of Muhammad. And so I looked at a suburb of Damascus, I guess you could say, a town called Daraya, uh, in which there were a number of companions, uh, allegedly, who were buried, and how a short biographical text about people who had lived in and died in, in, in that city or in that town um, reflected this preoccupation with sacred space hearkening back to important early figures. Uh, so the John the Baptist thing really served as the basis for early Islamic cultic practice in the region. And then I again looked at how Byzantine tradition of venerating holy figures or holy men and women uh, was also co-opted then in, in, in Damascus and its environs uh, with their own early figures, the companions of Muhammad in particular, other early people, and the, the, the folks who kind of drew a, a degree of cachet, I suppose, in saying this companion was buried here, his descendants lived here, and some of them still live here, uh, which I argued was kind of a, an adaptation of, of Byzantine veneration of holy men and women as well. Interesting. I was going to uh, ask if uh, there was any sort of, if you explored at all, the potential for, you know, John the Baptist having been mentioned in the Quran to the sort of, as you de are describing, the kind of parallels to, if that, if that had any impact, his already, you know, position in the Muslim scripture. Yeah, I, I looked at the verses in which he is mentioned, and I also looked at some of the... Um, I guess the hagiographic literature, one could say, there's a genre of, of literature called the stories of the prophets, uh, of which John the Baptist is one, and he assumes a rather large role as the kind of one of the forefathers of the biblical prophetic tradition. And so in, in part of this chapter, I looked at John the Baptist in what I call the medieval Islamic imagination, right, what we call the medieval Islamic imagination. And uh, so I looked at a number of texts to see the relationship with Jesus as imagined by later medieval Muslim authors. Uh, and again, it kind of reinforced that story of John as the holy figure, as the connection to biblical prophecy, as the forerunner of Jesus and the friend of Jesus. And there were a number of biblical tropes that were adapted into this. That some of the sources for the stories of the prophets were Jewish sources um, and Christian sources. So I, I tried to look at not just the physical incorporation of the Baptist into the church, but also the, I guess, the literary and imaginative incorporation of the Baptist into 
an Islamic narrative about the history of prophecy uh, and how that, that legacy of prophecy was one that was uh, a Muslim uh, tradition, not just a Christian tradition. And then as uh, moving forward uh, in your final chapter, you discuss uh, Damascus and the medieval imagination um, of iconic texts. Yeah, and you know, I think maybe that whole uh, metaphor of text and icon, icon and text, and then iconic text, you know, I feel now that it made a bit a little strain. Back then it felt like a really beautiful symmetry. Um, but what I what I like about, about this chapter um, is that I, I got to, again, deal with a lot of different types of material. Uh, and one of the most, I think, beautiful and intriguing literary genre in, in medieval Islamic historiography is the genre of fada'il, of or merits or excellences. And there are fada'il of all kinds of things, uh, of cities, of the Qur'an, of the companions of Muhammad, of the family of the Prophet, of the times of day. You know, it's a wonderful tradition that is really uh, imaginative. Um, and so it incorporates a lot of different kinds of stories and a lot of different kinds of narratives. And so I wanted to look at what I thought were iconic texts in the sense that they painted a picture. Uh, so almost very literally uh, as being symbols of something, taking the word icon really literally. Uh, and so I looked at how uh, these texts tried to conjure a picture and tried to literally draw a representation. And so I looked at geographical texts very briefly in the beginning of this chapter. Um, but other, other kinds of uh, religious merits or fada'il texts that functioned the same way ekphrastic literature functioned in the Byzantine tradition uh, to praise uh, or to visually describe something in an evocative and, and praising kind of way. And so I looked at different narratives on the sacrality of Syria, uh, on the topography of Syria, and praise literature uh, about Damascus, uh, which I then compared to another really rich tradition we have, which is praise literature on Jerusalem. And the argument that I, that I put forward here is that Damascus was one of a number of urban satellites which were important for the projection of uh, a monumental and uh, religiously sanctioned kind of sacred geography uh, right over the actual topography of the, the holy cities of the early Islamic period and kind of looked at how Damascus figured relative to Jerusalem, to Mecca, to Medina. Uh, I, I, I relied a lot on um, Barry Flood's work to think about how the Umayyads compared Damascus perhaps to Constantinople, the other great imperial city, uh, which they did not manage to capture, to think about how uh, texts that were part of the tradition of glorifying the city uh, did so by talking about its physical features. And again, the people who were buried there, uh, the, the holy places that were there. Uh, and so, and here I talked again about the, the companions who were buried uh, in Daraya, to, to discuss the kind of spreading sacred geography uh, through the monumentalization of uh, the, the tombs or graves of important people. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, sure. Now, uh, it's been about two years since this work was originally published, and one question that I sometimes ask authors is, you know, having kind of revisiting this work, uh, were there any sort of things that, you know, you felt 
you could have added to this or things that kind of, you know, you thought should require further exploration? Yeah, there's always stuff you regret and wish wasn't there and stuff that you that you wish you had been able to put in. Uh, I think it's probably the perfectionist's curse um, that you always wish you could redo some stuff. So I think I'm lucky in the sense that one of the questions that I wanted to explore more deeply is something I get to address in my next project. So maybe we can talk about that. Um, and I, I think probably I would have, I would have done some things differently in the, in the second chapter, just because that was the one that I think really kind of came out of the dissertation most intact, whereas a lot of the other stuff was really revised. And, you know, I think I might've tried to narrate the story of early Islamic historiography in Syria a little more, um, artfully. It's tough to talk about prosopography in a beautiful way. It's really hard to talk about genealogies in, in, in an exciting manner. <laughs> so I, I might have tried to kind of simplify that text a little bit, make it a little more interesting to read, because I really did want this book to be readable, which is why it's not overly long. Um, and I wanted it to be a kind of a self-contained unit in the sense that, you know, somebody with maybe some background in Islamic history, but not too much, could pick it up and read it. Uh, and understand it, uh, and read it all the way through. So maybe just kind of domesticating those sources a little more would have been nice for me. Um, and I think also the chapter on, on John the Baptist and the icons and, and all of that stuff, I think I threw a lot into that chapter, and it's a complicated argument. Uh, so again, maybe just simplifying some of the technicalities would be kind of my pipe dream if I can go back in time. Uh, but you know, it had, it had to be what it had to be. And I'm pretty mm-hmm. pleased with how it came out. But again, you you always want people to read your book and you don't want it to be too technical. Um, so that's what I would change if I could. Um, and then the, the other thing about what I, what I could expand on. So the next project, is it all right to talk about the next project? Oh, uh, of course, yeah. please. So the next project has to do with, um, the companions, both as a historical category of people. These are the people who were around Muhammad, his friends, his generation, the folks who who were the witnesses to his life. Uh, They're known as the Sahaba, the Companions, with a capital C. Um, So the next book is on how they are imagined as both a historical category of of people, of actual folks, but also how they figure into uh, knowledge production and how knowledge is sanctioned and certified uh, in Islamic intellectual history, which is to say, since they are the witnesses to both the revelation of the Quran and the life of Muhammad, and are the conduit for the tradition about Muhammad, the Hadith, and are the primary interlocutors, basically, for all later communities and the first community, uh, how do they, how does that work? How do people certify them, talk about them, venerate them? uh, To what degree are they fictionalized? To what degree do they become uh, simply utilitarian for uh, sanctioning different people's ideas of what Islam should be and what a community is uh, because of their historical importance? And how does allegiance or loyalty to some companions over the others, which some would call in a very general way the origins of of the Sunni-Shi'i sectarian divide, uh, since all the people who argued over succession were companions. Um, 
So how does that really work and how is that reflected in, in the development of different historiographical genre, like biographical dictionaries, like the religious merits of the companions, uh, or the religious merits of the family of Muhammad, the descendants of Ali, um, and how does that map onto or affect or help generate sectarian articulations of different notions of community, which is to say different notions of orthodoxy in the medieval Islamic world. So I, I've moved a little bit away from the question of Christian-Muslim relations, since I'm working on a later medieval Islamic set of sources. Um, and I'm looking at different tombs of companions, particularly in the Levant. Uh, so I'm not really asking questions about Christian-Muslim stuff in the second project, but my work is constantly informed by a similar set of questions, which is to say, how do people form their identities? How do they express that identity in literature and in material culture? How is that part of how they build their communities and conceive of themselves as a community, uh, and this time in a different kind of competitive atmosphere, which is to say an intra-Muslim sectarian atmosphere, as opposed to a Christian-Muslim uh, interconfessional competitive atmosphere. Very fascinating. We definitely will be looking forward for that book to come you out. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nancy, thank you very much for uh, giving us so much of your time today. And, you know, definitely everybody should go out and pick up this work because it is fantastic. The uh, And I, you know, I was going to address it before that, you know, I found the text, you know, very manageable. And even as a student of Islam, the introduction was Highly, highly informative. I'm happy uh, to hear that. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And uh, not just I, but a lot of other people must have thought so as well, because I just wanted to also mention that this was one of the top five finalists for the best first books in the history of uh, religion award at the AAR, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that was a real honor. That was a big deal yes. for me. Yeah. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Nancy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us as we explored... Damascus After the Muslim Conquest, the book written by Professor Nancy Halick. We look forward to you joining us as we explore future books on the New Books Network for Islamic Studies. 